morning. Please take your copy of God's Word, and as you heard Albert say, uh, turn to Isaiah 46. Today we'll be looking at uh, chapters 46 and 47 out of Isaiah. And again, in these chapters, we're going to see the prophet's attempt to persuade the stubborn, the, the hard-hearted, those who keep rejecting Yahweh and his word. And he's going to attempt to persuade them that God is sovereign over the entire universe. And he will accomplish his plans to save his people. Chapter 46, Yahweh is described not like the inanimate gods of Babylon that are useless and can do nothing. And in chapter 47, we see Yahweh's plan to destroy proud Babylon and to show that idolatry and destruction go together. And I know what you're thinking. Another Father's Day message about destruction of Babylon. <laughs> year after year, every Father's Day, we get to read the prophets and hear about the destruction of Babylon again. You're wondering, how many ways can I tie this to Father's Day? Well, hope you hang in there with me. You see, these, these words, these, this message was not written to the Babylonians, even though it's about their demise. It was written for the Jews in exile in Babylon. And it was written for us. And we can't miss that. This message is just as applicable to us today as it was to the Jews in Babylonian captivity. These chapters contain lessons to be learned. These are not just stories to be told. Now on this Father's Day, I cannot stand up here and think that you'll remember my words and what I say about Isaiah's prophecy. In all honesty, when it comes to Father's Day memories, I know that I can't compete with your neckties or your new grilling tools or your new razor or your hot dog of the month club, whatever you got. But I promise you that uh, those things will, will stay in your memories so instead, hear the teaching of Yahweh. Hear what he has for us. His desire is that fathers, and may I say all men, will be the spiritual pace setters in the family and in the church. Hear his words to strengthen your resolve. Hear and heed the admonition of Yahweh so that you lead your families in righteousness and in truth. But we do want to honor fathers among us today. So please, before we begin, could all of the fathers in the congregation please stand up and be recognized? Takes some longer than others. I see that. <laughs> and that's okay. Man, I want you to know that we love you. And we earnestly desire for you to be equipped and encouraged to be the man and the husband and or father that scripture calls us to be and for whom Christ died, so that you can be what he has commanded you to be. Thank you, men. You may sit down. And now pay attention. There may be a quiz afterwards on this. All right, as we look at chapters 46 and 47, we see again, the prophet is calling the people to renounce idols and to trust Yahweh. 
It seems like as we've been in Isaiah, we've been hearing this message over and over again. And yet the people need to hear it over and over again. You see, Isaiah's battle, his difficulty is that the people are caught in unbelief. That's the problem. See, remember, these passages were written more than a hundred years before their intended recipient would read them. Isaiah knew that exile was coming, that the people of Israel would be taken from their homeland and marched to a foreign land where they would serve a foreign king and they would be forced to worship foreign gods. They wouldn't be in their homes. They wouldn't be worshiping in the temple as Yahweh has directed. They're living in a culture that hates Yahweh and despises the ways of God. This is the people that this is written to. By this time, many of them have probably decided it's better to go along to get along. In other words, let's just go along with what the Babylonians are doing. We're here. You know what? In all of history, we've never seen a people taken in exile from their homeland, from their ancestral homeland, taken to another land as captives and return to their ancestral homeland and be a kingdom again. We've never seen that happen. So the Jews are thinking, what's going to happen to us? We're out, we're by ourselves, we're in exile. Yahweh has forgotten. Perhaps they thought that Yahweh only lived in his temple in Jerusalem and only ruled over the land of Israel. But now the temple was destroyed and the people removed. Maybe they thought that the the gods of Babylon were more powerful than Yahweh. At least Yahweh has abandoned them. They're living in unbelief. They're not recounting the promises made by Yahweh. So many embrace the culture of the time, Babylonianism. Okay, I just made that word up. But but that is, is a good way to understand the culture and the times. And in fact, the one commentator says, Babylon is a cipher for the whole world culture outside of Christ. Did you get that? See, what Babylon was and what it represents will continue on. It's a culture that is apart from Christ. It's a a culture that is at war with God. It is the essence of the world in those days. It was the essence in those days. It's the essence in our day. And it will be the essence of the world in all the days until the end comes. The battle here is against this Babylonianism that is going on. And it's these attitudes that Isaiah is combating. He will again talk of the futility of both idols and of the world system that is rebellious to Yahweh. So here's the outline of where we're going this morning. In chapter 26, Isaiah confronts the idols. In one through seven, he shows us that the idols are not gods at all, but they're things that must be made and carried, and therefore they cannot save. 
In in verses 8 through 13, he wants us to see that Yahweh is the true God who stands alone in the universe. There is none like him. In chapter 47, Isaiah describes what happens to idolatrous cultures, specifically to, to Babylon. And in verses one through seven, we're gonna see the fall of Babylon. Babylon who, who thought she was great. Babylon who thought she was unconquerable. Babylon will fall. And we'll see why. In verses eight through 11, we see the pride of Babylon. You see, their confidence was in themselves. Their confidence was in their military might. Their confidence was in their gods. It was in their pagan worship. It was in their sorcerers and astrologers, their chanters. That's where their hope was. And then finally in 12 through 15, we're gonna see the helplessness of Babylon. No matter what, they're not gonna win. No matter what, they're going down. And and the, the chapter ends with these almost sad words. There was no one to save you. Babylon has met its match and there is no one to save. Let's look at what the prophet says. Chapter 46, it says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Who's Bel? (laughs) Who's Nebo? Who are these characters being introduced to us? Yeah, so... Bel and Nebo are the two chief gods of Babylon. And we see this in some of the names of the Babylonian rulers. You have Belshazzar, you have Nebuchadnezzar, Nebopolazar, Nebonidus. So Bel is also becomes known as Marduk. And Marduk is known as the creator god. In, their, in the Enuma Elish, their creation epic, their myth about creation This God, Marduk, is the one who creates everything. He creates the stars. He creates the the, the moon. He creates day. He creates night. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Creation. And he creates man. So Marduk, or Bel, is to them the creator God. And they're also going to say he is sovereign over all things. And we see this in, in his eldest son, Nebo, Nebo's the eldest son, and he is the keeper of the tablets of destiny. Pretty cool title. What does that mean? The, the, table, the tablets of destiny describe what's going to happen in the new year. So together, Bell and Nebo have sovereignty over all human events, according to this myth. And in fact, in Babylon, to celebrate the new year, the worshipers would take these statues of Bel and the statues of Nebo and they would put them on these platforms and they would bear them on their shoulders and they would parade them through the city. There'd be a, a great procession where people are worshiping these statues as they walk through. And they're trying to earn the favor of the gods so they have a prosperous new year. That's who Bel and Nebo are. In their myth, the creator God, the sovereign God, 
And that's who Yahweh will challenge directly. And before we even get to the destruction of Babylon and the worthlessness of these idols, Isaiah notices something peculiar. These gods, even the so-called creator god, Bel, they're actually made by human craftsmen. They have to be formed. They have to be made. What kind of supreme God has to be made? And once they are made, they cannot care for themselves. They have to be carried about. They have to be propped up. They have, be, have to be toted around by animals. These great Babylon gods who people were worshiping, we see are gonna be humiliated. And it says that they bowed down and, and they're carried around by beasts and livestock. What kind of God is that? And in fact, it says that they're, they're burdens to the weary beasts. I wonder if even the weary beasts are going, this is ridiculous. Really, this is your God and I have to tote it around. This is what's happening here. In verse three, he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who has been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. So Yahweh is saying here, look, pay attention. Listen, Israel. I'm actually the one who has carried you. You see, that's what a God does. A God doesn't need to be made by human hands. A God doesn't need to be carried about. A God cares for his people. And that's what Yahweh says. And he says, get this, not just from your youth, but from the womb. I've cared for you. And now we think, okay, that makes sense. Children, infants and children need to be carried about. But when you get older, you end up having to take care of your parents and you have to sometimes carry them about. But that's not so with Yahweh. He does not age. He does not grow weary. So Yahweh is saying, so from the time you were, before you were born through your old age, I carried you because that's what a God does. I'm the one who takes care of you. Have you not seen? And we're going to see later, he's going to call, he's going to call on them to remember the things that he has done. But he wants them to listen. And he says in, in the end of verse four, I have made and I will bear. This is like, God's 100% guarantee. And then we have some parallelism here. He says, I have made, which goes along with I will carry. I have made and will carry you. I will bear your burdens and I will save you. This is what Yahweh is saying. He is the one who saves. Then in verse five, To whom will you liken me and make my equal and compare me that we may be, that we may be alike? So 
who do we compare? Yahweh calls him out. He says, go ahead, show me. Who is like me? Name someone, pick something. Nothing in the created universe is like Yahweh. And he calls them out. You need to see this. Yahweh is unique. And yet, when we have idols, we do that exact thing. Not only do we liken things to God, but we often elevate it to be greater than God. This is utter foolishness. And while the prophet describes physical idols made to represent false deities, there's a greater understanding that we must grasp. You see, it's, it's kind of easy for us to distance ourselves from this text a little bit. We're talking about someone who lived 2,500 plus years ago, all right? Halfway around the world. These are primitive pagans. And they made their idols and they brought them in and put them on their shelves. That's not us. You see, it's easy. We don't do that. We don't make these idols that we place on the shelves. We never do that. But if we think that the only idols like this are the ones that Isaiah is talking about, we're mistaken. And I've, I've read and I've been learning from a 17th century English Puritan, David Clarkson, who describes something he calls soul idolatry. Now he gets this from scripture. In Ezekiel 14, it says, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Did you hear that? The idols are now in their hearts. What does that mean? That means this isn't no longer, this is no longer just a physical thing. This is something that they have internalized. In Ephesians 5, 5, it describes someone who is covetous as an idolater. If we covet, that becomes our idol. And we say, well, I don't know that I go around coveting. Sometimes we call it shopping. We have different words, but are we coveting? Have we made that our God? Is this the thing that is now going to make me happy? If I just browse Amazon a little bit longer, find those lightning deals, this is the thing that'll make me happy. So we, we do this today. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. There's more to idolatry than just statues. Clarkson said, indeed, every reigning lust is an idol and every person in whom it reigns is an idolater. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. That is pleasures and riches and honors are the carnal man's trinity. The three great idols of worldly men to which they prostrate their souls and, and giving that to them, which is due only to God and thereby become guilty of idolatry. That unholy trinity, which he says is pleasures, riches, and honors. Today, we would equate the pleasures with not only sensuality, but leisure and entertainment in our lives. Certainly we'd include gluttony and drunkenness in that. And riches is the materialism of the day and the greed that accompanies it. Accompanies it. I can't even imagine that back in the 17th century, he would have any idea what kind of materialism we have today and how that is so prevalent in our culture and our society. And finally, honors refers to our desire for recognition, 
for position, security, and, and rank in other people's eyes. Social media feeds this like raw meat to a hungry lion. It's the worship of self. It's pride. This is the, these are the idols we're dealing with. Clark went on, he says, now when this worship is made common, communicated to other things, whatever they are, we hereby make them idols and commit idolatry. And he clarified, these are not just external items of the, of the pagans. He wants us to see that because we, we're, we're gonna run to the easy answer where I don't make statues of gold or silver. I can't afford gold or silver, but I don't make them out of wood either. I don't make them out of anything and place them up in my life. And he's gonna say, no, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Whatever that we do those things for. He insisted that this is external, which our physical worship and internal. He said, when the mind is most taken up with an object and the heart and the affections most set upon it, this is soul worship. And this is due only to God. Did you hear that? The heart and the affections most set upon it. What do we love? When our worship is misdirected, that is directed towards anything or anyone other than God, we commit idolatry. Secret or soul idolatry, as he calls it, is when we look at anything and want anything more than God, anything that's more valued than him. So let's examine ourselves in this. Let's take a look. Clarkson poses some questions for us to ask ourselves. What do we esteem? What do we think about? What are our goals in life? What do they line up with? What do we love? What do we fear? What do we delight in? What do we trust? Anything other than God is wrong and is an idol. So to whom will you liken him? Because there is no one like him. They make their idols out of gold and silver and they carry them on their shoulders and place it somewhere and it can't move. If you cry out to it, it can't answer you. If you need help, it can't save you. Verse eight, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. And so we see in this section, the problem of unbelief. So remember their problem. They're, they're in exile. Their, their situation is they're in a foreign land, subject to a foreign king, unable to worship Yahweh in the temple because the temple's gone. And they're dwelling in a culture that lives contrary to Yahweh. And they don't believe that Yahweh can do what he said he will do. They don't believe the promises made. So what's the remedy for unbelief? When we struggle with unbelief, when we see the circumstances in our life seem to line up and pile up against us, what's the remedy? How do we fix our eyes on the right thing? And we're told here three times in a row, remember, recall it to mind, remember. This is what it is. That, that second part of verse eight, recall it to mind is what my translation says, but cause it to return to your heart. Seriously consider these things and remember. And each remembrance has a response. The first one, remember and stand firm. Be brave. 
I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 16, 13. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Our remembrance should help us. We should be encouraged and strengthened by this. And by the way, the, the this, the remember, the this, the this we're supposed to remember picks up in verse nine. But he says, recall it to mind or cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. You see, this has a sense of rebellion in it. You think Yahweh was defeated? You think Yahweh can't save? You think Yahweh is weak or that he has forgotten you? No, remember this, Yahweh is the one who put you in exile. It was Yahweh who caused this to happen. I remember hearing of a man who had sinned and when the consequences were coming down on him, which was prison, he asked why God would allow this to happen to him. It happened because his God was not Yahweh. He worshiped an idol. He worshiped something other than Yahweh, something that he had constructed. And there are consequences for idolatry. Then we're told, remember the former things of old. What things of old? Creation. Yahweh is the creator God. He is the one that created day and night. He's the one that created the stars and the moon. He's the one that formed man from the dust. Remember, even after sin, there's the promise of the seed of the woman who would come back to make things right. Remember the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional covenant that Yahweh will make happen. The promises that he had made. Remember the Exodus when you were slaves in Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time. And what did Yahweh do? He got you out of Egypt. And not only that, you left with wealth and greatness. Yahweh did that. And when you thought you were trapped by the Red Sea, do you remember that? What did Yahweh do? He parted the Red Sea so that you could walk on dry land and your enemy was destroyed. Remember the manna from heaven, how God provided the water from rocks, which Yahweh did. Remember the Mosaic covenant the blesses and curses, the blessings and curses. The remedy for unbelief is remembering. Recount what God has done for you. Now we get to the this part that's mentioned in verse eight. And the this part that we're supposed to remember is really, this is Yahweh's street cred. This is what he lays out for us. He says, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. He declares he is God, there is no other. There's no one like him. Then he declares his sovereignty. And how does he describe his sovereignty? He says that he declares the end from the beginning. In other words, he determines all activities. All of history is determined by him. Notice he doesn't say that I predict the future. 
That has the sense of possibility of failure if he just predicts it. We have people who predict all the time. We call them weathermen. But they try to predict what the weather's going to do. He doesn't do that. God declares it. I'm reminded of a, of a Chuck Norris joke. And if you're unfamiliar with them, Chuck Norris jokes are great. I, I like him a lot. Uh, talks about how great and invincible he is. For example, the flu gets a Chuck Norris shot. I like that. Or Chuck Norris is counted to infinity twice. I like that. But this one is, is the one here. It says, Chuck Norris does not go hunting. Hunting implies the possibility of failure. And so Yahweh doesn't predict the future. He declares it. If he says it, that's it. He does it and he has the power to do that. There's no possibility or even an inkling of the possibility of failure. He is Yahweh and there is no one like him. And he not only declares what will happen, but he makes it happen. He's completely sovereign over all things. You know, Babe Ruth is a legend for several reasons, but one was the 1932 Olympics when he's standing up to bat and has two strikes on him. And what did he do? He pointed to the center field outfield. And then on the next pitch, knocked it out exactly where he pointed. All right, he got lucky, all right? That, that is not something here that we go and say, oh, right, yeah, he, he didn't declare or, or make that happen in the sense he's not sovereign, he didn't have power. And if he hadn't been right, which is most of the time people aren't right, they'll be forgotten. But Yahweh has never failed in what he has declared. Yahweh never fails. His word is sure. We have his promises. He will not fail. And he directs human events, even foreign powers to do his bidding. He once commanded a donkey to speak wisdom to Balaam, the prophet. He will use, and he, can, and he does use, whomever and whatever he pleases. And this bird of prey is a foreign power that's going to swoop in quickly to conquer Babylon. I think that this is, refers to Cyrus defeating Babylon. But it doesn't matter if it's Cyrus or not. God has decreed that somebody's going to come in and conquer. And it'll happen. Yahweh is in control of all things. And he will bring righteousness and salvation. Israel will be restored. And that's the promise. And that's what they can count on. Now we can't brush over the descriptions of the people in this passage. They're called transgressors or, or rebels is a good term as well. They are stubborn of heart. They are far from righteousness. These rightly describe Israel's unbelief. They were caught up in the current events, the culture of the time. They forgot Yahweh and it led to unbelief. And in our own culture today, we experience this. We have the unrelenting drumbeat of wickedness and unrighteousness in our own culture. In almost every television show and in the movies, children's books push it, public schools indoctrinate. Our, we and our families are pounded by it day by day. We hear things like, you'll be on the wrong side of history if you don't agree with us. We're accused of misinformation or even hate speech because we adhere to the scriptures and what Yahweh has said. 
And this is driven like a railroad spike into our lives by this culture without ceasing. Quoting scholar Herbert Schlossberg, he said, it has become so prevalent that we no longer see our culture, but our culture is what we see with. And that describes a lot of what we see here in our own land and our own nation today. Our culture is defining us and that can't be true. So fathers, men, stand in the doorway, protect your families and protect the church. Be the spiritual pace setters, the leaders, the defenders of the faith. And that's what we need. Let's go to chapter 47. Chapter 47, first seven verses, come, come down and sit in the dust, O daughter, uh, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Isaiah begins addressing Babylon. He's addressing them directly here, but remember this lesson is for us. This was for the Jews at the time, and this message is for us. But basically, Babylon is described as a pampered, self-indulgent, spoiled little girl who's always gotten her way. She is delicate and tender. She sits on thrones and rules over others. She did not work, but had servants to do the work for her. She would prance about in fine clothes because she was on top. She symbolized wealth and success and ease and diva. But that coming to an end, for she has forgotten Yahweh. And in defeat, things change quickly and dramatically. It says, take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, robe, uncover your legs, pass through the waters, the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace seen, uh, shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Things change quickly. Instead of a throne, she now sits on the ground in the dirt. She will now have to do work and labor for her food. Her fine clothes are to be removed and she will look like a field hand with dirt and grime and crusted mud. Her great name will be removed and cast into the trash heap of history. John Bowring, a hymn writer in the early 19th century, said it this way in one of his hymns, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All of these failed kingdoms like Babylon are just wrecks of time. They will collapse and they will be forgotten. And this was what was about to happen to Babylon. And why was Yahweh so unsparing? When Babylon was in power, granted by Yahweh, because Yahweh chose Babylon to punish Israel, and he says that, I chose you, you were to execute judgment on my behalf, but what did you do? You showed no mercy. And even the aged people, you made work and bear a heavy yoke. They thought they'd be in power forever, and they had quickly forgotten what they had once known. What did they once know? Well, we can go back to the book of Daniel, chapter four, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was in rule. 
And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar declared in chapter four, verse one. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Later he says, and in, my, in the end of my, uh, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Did you hear that? This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. Yahweh got his attention and he calls out and he cries out. This, this is a message for everybody, all peoples, all languages. I need you to and he declares not only that, that there's one God, the most high God, but he declares that he's sovereign over everything. He declares Yahweh's sovereignty. And it says that he does according to his will among, in heaven and on earth. And no one can say to him, what have you done? By the time that this is coming, by the time the destruction of Babylon, 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't been gone that long. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC. Now it's 539 and Babylon's conquered. They didn't have a lot of time to forget what Nebuchadnezzar had told them, what their own king had said about Yahweh, and yet they forgot. They were bound up in their own culture. They were bound up in their own might. They were bound up in themselves. They had forgotten. And so Yahweh would punish them too. Verse eight, we see the pride of Babylon. He says, now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That should sound familiar. They say, I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in a day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and great power of your enchantments, you felt secure in your wickedness. And you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is none, no one besides me but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone and ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. So what's their pride? Well, their pride in self, they think that their kingdom is so powerful. They declare that none of our sons will fall in battle. No women will be left as widows because that's what happens in warfare. 
The sons fall in battle and the women are left as widows. They said, that's not going to happen. We are too mighty for that. Plus, our gods are greater than any other gods. We have our sorcerers, our enchanters. We have those who can do incantations and have charms. We cannot be stopped. This is their pride. This is what they're relying on you. And yet the fall of Babylon began in their hearts. Listen to what they say about themselves. I am, and there is no one besides me. You remember what Yahweh said, the previous chapter, verse nine, he says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And what did the Babylonians do? Directly challenge Yahweh. This is the arrogance of humanity. And it's astounding. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel that they wanted to reach up to the heavens on their own. And it will continue to the end. It's the world's downfall, the world's demise. The issue is pride. Once pride creeps in, destruction and fall will follow. We lose our bearings when we're proud. Listen to what the Humanist Manifesto of 1973 said. It says, we affirm the moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. How arrogant is that? That is the way, that is Babylonianism right there on display. Their hope is in themselves. They are prideful. They think that they can do it. And Babylon had complete confidence in themselves and they trusted their pagan sorcerers and they thought they would get away with their sin. It says you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And yet we see earlier, it says your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace seen by all. And they were saying here, no, no one sees it. Yahweh doesn't see how evil we are. Yahweh's not picking up on this. There is no most high God that will hold us accountable. And yet it says their nakedness will be uncovered and their disgrace, and their disgrace shall be seen. And then they also claimed to have knowledge and wisdom. And yet they're not even going to see their own destruction coming. It's coming quickly. Babylon will lose everything. Disaster will strike. The enchanters will be powerless. They won't be able to offer any sacrifices to their powerless gods. They claim great knowledge and wisdom, yet they have no idea what is about to come crashing down on their heads. It's a result of pride. And again, they said in their hearts, I am and there is no one besides me. A direct challenge to Yahweh. And when you challenge Yahweh, who is there to save you? To whom can you turn? You see, our own pride prevents us from seeking the help that we need. Our own pride gets in the way when we are the ones who should be seeking Yahweh and we don't because we have pride. And the scripture calls us to instead have humility. And I was reminded again this morning of the John Chrysostom quote, it says, humility is the root, mother, nurse, and foundation of all Christian virtue. 
Think of a Christian virtue. I am to love one another. It is far easier to love one another when I walk in humility. It is far easier for me to serve one another as Christ served his disciples when he washed their feet if I walk in humility. It is far easier for me to exercise patience when I walk in humility. We are called to walk in humility but because pride is so deadly. Pride is so devastating in our lives. And then let's wrap this up. Verse 12 here to the end. It says, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who you have done business, uh, done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Here we see the meltdown. This is it. This is the meltdown of Babylon. This is the helplessness of Babylon. Their, their military might can't save them. Their gods can't help them. All human endeavors fail. So they line up everything they've trusted in. For Babylon, it was false gods. It was power. It was might. See, at one time, they had instilled terror upon people. At one time, they were the terror. When you knew that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon was coming, you were fearful for the destruction. And they had many counselors, but no one can help. They're stargazers, enchanters, sorcerers, diviners. They all fail. Judgment was coming and they were helpless. So what do we rely upon? What are, what are our idols? We have to examine ourselves. Otherwise, this is just a story to tell and not a lesson to be learned. In the military, we always look for lessons learned. We debriefed every mission. Every training mission was, was debriefed. It was scrutinized. We needed to find the lessons from what had happened. We needed to learn from it. Likewise, we need to scrutinize ourselves here to see what are the lessons for us? What do I need to pull from this text to say, Yahweh, yes, I've set up these idols. Now I want to destroy them. And we must do that. The last line in this chapter is most terrifying for anyone outside the family of God. There is no one to save you. And that is the end of all things. It is Christ or it is nothing. All roads don't lead to heaven, only one. And it's the way of the cross. Well, let's take a quick look at what we could take from this chapter. Number one, we've got to remove idols from our lives. This is a real hard examination that we must do. We must take a hard look and see who we trust in. We have to ask ourselves the tough questions. We must flee from idols. We need to find the idols in our lives and, and get rid of them. We must find our daily delight and spiritual nourishment in Christ. I know you hear this from the pulpit time after time. 
what we say about Scripture. We are to be men and women of prayer and to read our Bibles daily. We are to memorize, we are to meditate. This, this is how we remember. This is how we learn the promises of God. This is what helps us flee from idols. And then finally, resist the culture. In the upheavals of history, we're hearing the whispers of final judgment and final triumph. We hear that even today. One day we will hear fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You see, the judgment of God is not theoretical. The judgment of God is real. It's as real back then as it is real today and what we're experiencing now, that Yahweh will make come to pass what he has declared. And all of these worldly things will be destroyed and he will set up his kingdom. That's where our hope is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truths in it, Lord. We do worship you, the only God, the only sovereign God over all creation, sovereign over history and sovereign over every false God. And yet, Lord, we confess we don't always find our greatest pleasures and joys in Christ. We believe the lies that we can find happiness apart from him. So forgive us. You are indeed sovereign over all gods and even our idols that we construct in our hearts. Crush them for us. Destroy them. Leave not one splinter of wood or metal shaving where they stood. We want to delight in you and serve you only. And we pray this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.